Well, if you would please take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the New Testament this morning, to the book of Ephesians and the fourth chapter, Ephesians chapter four. And uh, we are going to read this morning from verses 11 through 16. A familiar text, and yet uh, one that we want to give some attention to this morning as well as some other places. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, it says this. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. A few weeks ago, I received a letter in the mail from our piano tuning service asking if they had done something wrong to indicate that uh, we weren't giving them our business anymore. No, of course, the answer was to that question. They were quite good at what they did the last time they came out. And yes, we still do need our piano tune, but um, it's just not something that we had gotten around to do for the amount of time in between the last time and when we got that letter. It had been too long since we tuned the piano. And of course, these are the kinds of things that can happen with any degree of maintenance around the house or otherwise. And so it is when it comes to the Christian life. And uh, one of those areas where we need some maintenance from time to time is in the way we think about the things that we do in the church and the ministry that we do in the church. And so we want to spend a little bit of time addressing this particular issue uh, entitled Your Ministry in the Church. Your Ministry in the Church. Thinking for a bit about how we serve within the church. We're going to to do this, we're going to take something of a break from our study of the book of Daniel. Those of you who have been with us, uh, you know that we just finished chapter 9. And so perhaps it might be appropriate that we, just as Daniel spoke of a sort of break between the 69th and 70th week, if you uh, follow what I've been teaching, then uh, you may also find we're about to take something of an undetermined amount of time for a break between chapter 9 and chapter 10. So we're going to do that for the purpose of looking at this subject of your ministry in the church. We're going to take a break and we don't know exactly when we will be back. But Lord willing, in the meantime, we're going to look at this really important subject, your ministry in the church. Uh, About six decades ago, President John F. Kennedy asked the famous words or spoke the famous words, ask not what your country can do for you, but what? what you can do for your country. And of course, that 
could be a helpful attitude for many people to adopt in terms of thinking, how can we contribute to the corporate whole of the people that we are a part of? Now, it is true that for Christians with regard to the church, there actually are some things that they should ask of the church. And in fact, not just ask, but demand of the church. A church should hold to biblical convictions unswervingly. A church should not be wishy-washy with regard to the truth of the word of God. And anyone who wants to put off those things as unimportant uh, on behalf of a church and say, well, what really matters and only what matters is that you're here, you're part of the church, and that you do your ministry. That really is just not a faithful church. The church should be expected to uphold sound doctrine. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that the church of the living God is to be the pillar and support of the truth. So you should ask of your church that it upholds sound doctrine and biblical convictions. You should ask that it does faithful ministry. You should ask that ministry is actually taking place, not just in ideas, but also in practice. There are some things that people showing up to a church should expect ask and even demand of a church. But it is also true that we don't simply ask things of a church. That we don't show up to a church and say, all I care about is, is the word of God taught faithfully. All I care about in my time here is making sure that I hear the truth of God without thinking about how that applies to our lives. And not only in thinking about how that applies to whether we do moral righteousness over against doing moral evil, but in whether we take seriously the commands of Scripture for the one another's, the ministry that we are supposed to do, the utilization of spiritual gifts, the obligations that we have within the body of Christ and as part of the body of Christ. There is much more to what takes place in the church than merely as critical and essential as they are holding to biblical convictions. And so just as the piano tuner needs to come to our house sometime soon and make sure that things are in order, we are going to also go back to some foundational matters. And we're going to do that for several reasons. One is that we might make sure we're doing things the right way. We don't want to take for granted that the things that we're doing are the things that the Bible says without actually analyzing them by means of looking at scripture itself. It's easy for us over time to drift out of tune Or it's easy for us to confuse particular practices as the non-negotiable things over against the principles of Scripture, which are the non-negotiable. And it's easy to get into a rut of thinking that the way we do things or the particular mode of ministry is the actual principle itself. Instead, we need to make sure that we are basing it on what Scripture actually says and those driving principles. So we want to make sure we're doing things the right way. Also, I want to encourage anyone who is not fulfilling their responsibilities with regard to these things to take them seriously and to make sure that you are fulfilling the divinely given commands to serve in the ways that Scripture prescribes. And then, thirdly, if you are serving in the church... If you are serving according to the way that God has designed the church to properly function, then I want you to not only be encouraged to excel still more, as 1 Thessalonians says, but also to be encouraged by the work that you're doing, to see the grace of God in your life, and to see the grace of God in the lives of other people doing this, and to give thanks to God for what he is doing. How appropriate it is that we 
finish the last song by singing that idea, yet not I, but Christ in me. Echoes of Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it? When he says, I served more than all the other apostles. What a bold claim, an amazing claim. It's the kind of thing that we would never say today because we would say, that's proud. And yet here Paul is just honestly assessing before the Lord, this is what happened. I served more than all of them, and yet what? Not I, but the grace of God with me. The grace of God being the empowering of the Holy Spirit, Christ in me, who enables us to do this very ministry. And it is this of which Jesus uh, uh, Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 4. Jesus gave these gifts to the body of Christ so that they might minister to one another. We are all given of the same spirit differing gifts so that we would serve in the way that God has prescribed. And we need to take this responsibility very seriously because as you probably saw in this passage if the church isn't operating the way that God intends a lot of problems will result we're going to talk as we go forward in the series about the reasons why we should minister to people but just as up front so you see the importance of it notice what happens in Ephesians 4 if things are not the way that they should be he says in verse 13, we're supposed to attain to the unity, unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a mature man. Implied by this is if we don't actually carry out the ministry that's told us that we should have here, then we will be disunified, we will not know Jesus Christ the way we should, and we will be immature, not reflecting Christ. It's not just teaching, but it is ministry that is essential to this and in addition we will as verse 14 says be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and if that doesn't describe the state of the modern evangelical church I'm not sure what verse in the bible would tossed to and fro by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine watch the bestseller lists of books listen to what goes on on the blogs and podcasts and everywhere else listen to what people follow after idea after idea after idea just waves of christian fads over and over again and what this says is that it is partially a result of a failure of the word of God to be brought to the people of God who then serve with one another in the way that God has prescribed. Instead of this, we need to grow up. We need to be mature, not children, but instead we are to grow up, verse 15, into all aspects, in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So we're going to look at the subject of Christian ministry. And what we're going to find throughout our time in studying this is that Christian ministry is service by believers and by the church that is done in and with the support of local churches governed by scripture and the gospel of Christ. I'll say that again in case you want to write it down. Christian ministry is service by believers and by the church that is done in and with the support of local churches governed by scripture and the gospel of Christ. There is a whole lot more to that that we'll see, but that is the essence for right now of what Christian ministry actually is and what we are to do. For this morning, I want to spend some time con think, considering the who, what, and where 
of ministry. Not so much in that order as we look at it, but it seemed to flow better for a title. So that's what we're going to call it. The who, what, and where of Christian ministry. And we're going to begin by looking at just the question of what is ministry? When we think about ministry, what are we talking about? Now, uh, some of you before, just I should back up a little bit and just mention we have covered these, uh, this subject before in several places. Those of you going through the membership class right now have heard about this. You'll hear about more of this tonight about what ministry is. Uh, there has been an entire class that we did a few years ago on, uh, in a Sunday school class on what ministry is in the church. And many of those ideas were taught there. But we want to make sure that the whole body has this particular, uh, this particular set of truths that we're covering. So uh, if you're wondering why, you know, we keep banging this drum. Hopefully it's clear from what I've already said. But this is something that we are going to just keep coming back to over and over again, and now is no exception. So what is ministry? What actually is ministry? I want to think first about some common perceptions about ministry. What comes to mind when you think about ministry? What are you, what, what is the first thing that pops into your mind? I would say for many people, one of these things is what we'll call vocational ministry. Vocational ministry, what people do for their jobs, or if not vocational ministry, then at least formal pastoral ministry or perhaps some kind of ministry in an officially recognized position. In many places throughout history, including in our own day in many ways, the word minister is basically equivalent to the word pastor in many people's mind. He is the minister of the church or they are the minister of this or the minister of that. Now, biblically speaking, of course, a pastor is a minister, or at least should be, but not necessarily the other way around. Not every minister is a pastor, biblically speaking. A minister could be somebody who is just part of a church staff. A minister could be a deacon. Or somebody who is doing ministry could be somebody who is in some type of official role in a church organization. This is the way that people often think about ministry, vocational ministry. Another way people think about ministry is just simply the idea of doing good deeds. Just doing good deeds. We're going to go minister to the poor. We're going to minister to the needy. Or perhaps very uh, common in our day, minister to the least of these. As they would take Jesus' words from Matthew 25 and sort of apply them in a particular way, which I would like to argue later on are usually not exactly the way that Jesus intended those words. But ministering to people in need, doing good deeds, ministering to the poor, ministering to other people, ministering to the hurting, ministering to those who are suffering in some way. Just simply that, or, or the idea of just ministering where people don't necessarily seem to have these glaring needs, but they just need to be served in some way or another. So ministry is just doing good deeds is the way that this is often thought of. Uh, or maybe you could just take ministry in the way that the word is used, and it can be taken to mean basically anything at all. If you do anything, uh, almost anything at all that is connected to the following ideas, then people will call it a ministry. Someone is a Christian and they do some stuff, so they call it a ministry. Somebody does some kind of good for someone and they call it a ministry. Or there's something that's connected to the church in some way. You know, we have a, a golfing ministry. Well, what's the ministry there? Well, we try to score as low as we can in our golf match, of course. But it's connected to the church, so it's a ministry just by virtue of the fact that it is church-connected, church-related. Or even if something is just simply a nonprofit of some kind. 
It's a ministry. And of course, to be sure, some of these things are really ministry in very real ways. But this doesn't mean that it's the exact thing that the Bible intends when it talks about ministry. So what does the Bible intend by this particular idea? What is a biblical perspective on ministry? Let's consider that. Not just the common way that people use the term, but the biblical perspective on ministry. Now, it's a little bit of a New Testament focus idea, but that's not to say that the Old Testament did not have people who carried out the kinds of things that are described in ministry uh, in the New Testament. One of the most common people who would be considered in ministry in the Old Testament would be those who were of the Levitical tribe, those who were Levites, and in particular within that, those who were priests serving in the tabernacle, serving at the temple, giving, uh, offering sacrifices, tending to the bread and to the candle, and all the things that are going on in there. There would be people who are fulfilling those official roles. Uh, also, in addition to this, people would refer to themselves in the Old Testament as God's servant, the servant of the Lord. And this would be people from the lowliest of status all the way up to the king himself, who would be considered the servant of the Lord. And as we'll see, this idea of service is very important. Uh, and in addition to this, there were many, many commands in the Old Testament with regard to how people were to do good to other people in ways that would be equivalent to what we might call certain types of ministries today. The way that the Old Testament law was designed was very often to look out for those who were in need. It was to look out for your neighbor above and beyond yourself. In fact, when Jesus said the two great commandments in the law, when he listed out what they were, he said, it's not only to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but also to do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said that on these commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Apostle Paul uh, echoed that idea when in Romans 13, he says, if you do these things in the Ten Commandments, if you don't steal, if you don't murder, if you don't commit adultery, you don't covet, then you have fulfilled the law. If you follow those things, then you have, as he goes on to say there, fulfilled the law of love, the law of Christ. So when we look at what God expected of people in Old Testament times, much of it had to do with regard to the way that they treated one another and the way that they ministered. So you have the formal service before God of people who were serving in religious worship, and then you had the way that people treated each other, the way that they were to respond to one another in those ways. So what you have is uh, the kinds of things that are essentially the foundation for New Testament ministry. When we come to the New Testament, there are some key terms that are often connected with service or ministry. You have uh, liturgia, the family of this, which has to do with the temple or religious service. Just, just giving you a couple of the sort of underlying Greek words. The temple or religious service, the, the more formal religious idea. You also have the idea of someone who ministered to another, but more formally in the sense of being a slave to them or a, a bondservant, doulos. Many of you are familiar with that word. And then you have what is more the quintessential ministry term or term for ministry, which is diakonia, or the word that we get our word deacon from, and the, the word family that is connected with that as well, which basically just means ministry or service. There are a number of passages that I want you to, to uh, look at just to get a picture, sort of a, a broad picture of what's going on with this word. I think they should be uh, up behind us here just in a moment. Um, one of these is in Acts 6, verse 4, 
when the apostles refer to what they called the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word. These are all instances, by the way, of this third word, this diakonia. Uh, the ministry of the word. Now, alongside of this, there was also Acts 6.1, the daily serving is how it's rendered there. Daily serving of food, where the widows from among the church were being served with food. So interestingly, even here you have the idea both of word ministry and deed ministry side by side in the same passage being used, the same word being used to describe two different types of ministry going on, both within and based in the church. Acts chapter 12, verse 25, we read about Barnabas and Saul on a mission to Jerusalem with relief funds for the church there that was uh, suffering the results of a famine. And so they brought these funds from elsewhere so that the church could actually be supported, the believers there, in their, in their time of need. In Acts 21.19, the Apostle Paul speaks of his ministry to the Gentiles, which as we know was evangelistic. It was a missionary ministry. He went and he preached the word. He founded churches. He strengthened churches. He appointed elders in the churches. And then he checked back on them to make sure that everything was fine. It was the church-centered gospel ministry of spreading the word of God to new places. So that was Paul's ministry in Acts 21. In Romans 12... Verse 7, we have a broader picture of ministry where Paul is exhorting people to use their gifts and he says regarding someone how they are to serve and he describes it this way, if service in his serving. Just this very big picture of service in general. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul contrasts the ministry of the Old Testament law versus the ministry of of the New Testament gospel of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of reconciliation, as he calls it in 2 Corinthians 5.18, as found in the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul told Timothy to fulfill his ministry or his service, and so also in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul mentioned to Timothy that Mark was useful to him for service, for ministry. And finally, we read, in Hebrews 1.14, <clears throat> that the angels are sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Even they perform ministry on behalf of God. And Jesus then, in Revelation 2.19, commends the church for their service, their ministry, the whole church. All of this to say that the basic meaning of ministry when it comes to what we're talking about here is service. It is service on behalf of Christ, service to Christ, but very often manifested by serving one another and by serving other people in and as part of the church. And that is, that last part of what I mentioned, is the new element, uh, not entirely new, but certainly new in some ways, this new dimension that is brought up when the New Testament describes the element of ministry within the church and that is the answer to the next question not just what is ministry but where do we minister where do we minister and uh, I want you to turn over with me just flip over if you're still in Ephesians 4 to Galatians just flip back a few pages Galatians chapter 6 where do we minister well first of all we minister to all people as we have opportunity 
to all people as we have opportunity. Verse 10 of Galatians 6 says this. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to how many people? All people. All people. Now, he is not saying here, all right, there are 7 billion people in the world. So if we're going to do good deeds, we're going to have to split our time and our resources and make sure that we hit every single person in the world. This is one of those instances in the Bible where it's very obvious that the meaning of all people has to be determined contextually. So he says, let us do good to all people. What is he saying? He is saying, be sort of indiscriminate in your willingness to do good to anyone who comes across your path. Anyone you have the opportunity to do good to, go ahead and do it. Don't withhold, as the Proverbs say, from your neighbor when you have it with you to do good to him. Don't keep it back. Just do good. Look for those opportunities. Let us do good to all people. But then, what does he say next? Let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. The household of faith, of course, referring to the church of God, referring to fellow believers. And what he's saying there is that there ought to be a particular emphasis upon the people that we serving being those who belong to Christ. So rather than, on the one hand, simply serving whoever comes in our path and making no distinction between Christians or not, and on the other hand, saying, no, we only serve Christians and we don't do anything for the world. What the Bible says is that we are to minister to all, but in particular to those in the church. Now, I'm hoping this becomes apparent as we go throughout this series of messages because of the implied statements of the New Testament when talking about where we are to carry these things out and then also by certain uh, pictures of how the New Testament shows that believers did prioritize one another. So I'm hoping this becomes apparent, but I'm not planning to get into a detailed proof of this at the moment. I just want to make sure that we're clear on this up front, that yes, we do serve all people, and yet there's a particular focus on doing so toward one another in the church. You may be noticing that this message title, the series title is very intentional with regard to this, your ministry in the church. It is not just your ministry that you do as a Christian that you decide to take out anywhere and do anywhere, but it is in the church, tied to the church. And much of what is called ministry is unfortunately and has often gotten untethered from the local church, completely untethered from the local church and whether that is parachurch ministry that has no connection to the local church and certainly no authority in any way by the local church in many cases uh, whether it is parachurch ministry that takes away from the ministry of the local church and the vital components that are called upon to be done within the structure of the local church or whether it's just individual people kind of taking their own ministry and having no connection to the church and doing that as well. Whatever it might be, this is not the New Testament picture. It is to be connected with the church. And so, not all ministry is done for believers. This should be clear. Not all ministry on top of that is formally programmed by the church. Certainly, not all ministry is formal. And not all ministry is 
corporate involving the whole church. It can be done by individuals. But it is the case that all ministry either takes place within the church or in some sense finds its roots within the people of God. Meaning that it is done with the accountability of the local church in mind, with the support of the local church in mind. And that may be the church as a whole or individual believers, but nonetheless, it finds its root there. This is where you find your strength to do this. This is where you are equipped to do this. This is where you find the the doctrinal anchors that help you to stay firm when you're doing these things out in the world. The church is to be the basis and often the playing field, the exact location of ministry. So it is centered upon the local church. We minister to all people as we have opportunity, but we also minister centered upon the local church. This is the where of ministry. Again, we'll talk about this more as we go, but this is a vital point for us to know up front. We are to minister within the church. So the question then becomes, who ministers in the church? Who ministers in the church? And for this, it's helpful just to be back in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, you're probably, if you're putting the pieces together, thinking about the series title, and you're feeling the finger pointing at you from the Bible. It is not just ministry, and it's not just ministry in the church. It is whose ministry? Your ministry, my ministry, all of our ministry, if we are Christians, Who ministers in the church? The simple answer, all believers, all Christians. Um, Before we even look in detail at Ephesians chapter 4, some other passages. One of these we heard in our members meeting this morning as Tim read this. Hebrews 6.10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Who's he talking about? The believers that he's writing to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is in the middle of talking about uh, how the Corinthians were to prepare for and how they had to some degree prepared for giving of their, uh, the money that they had to other churches who were in desperate need, similar to what Paul was doing when he and Barnabas took up uh, some money initially to the church in Jerusalem. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 12 and 13. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Here is a Gentile church as a whole participating in the ministry of supporting those in need at another church in another location. And then you have, backing up a bit, in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, a reference to the household of Stephanus and how they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. They, the household of Stephanus, the household, all of the people in this household, This is not just the leaders of the church. This is not just one individual person. This is all of them. And then finally, one more passage just to keep in mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, Paul says there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, varieties of ministries, and the same Lord, 
varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons, where he says that the ministry of spiritual gifts as the Lord works these things is considered a ministry. How many of us have spiritual gifts? All of us do, as we'll see later on. And therefore, we are all, as we exercise them, faithfully performing ministry. But of course, the most direct passage on this is Ephesians chapter 4. We often have the perspective that pastors and leaders in the church are the ones who do ministry. That they are the ones who are, quote, in the ministry. That they are the ministers. And of course, that's just not the whole picture. Now, someone who is a leader in the church who is not a minister and who is not serving in the church would be a poor leader indeed. But nonetheless, they are not the only ones doing this. And in fact, they exist in large part to make sure to help other people doing this. So what's the progression? Well, you have here in Ephesians 4 some statements about the unity of the body. You have the need for believers to preserve this unity. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is a degree to which this unity already exists in the church. Because simply of the fact that we are one as a church. And he gives the basis for this in verses 4 through 6. There's one body, one spirit. You were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If there is this kind of unity, who should break it apart? If anyone does this, they've badly misunderstood or forgotten these truths about the unity of all that connects us together. We should be very eager and diligent to preserve this. But there's a little bit of uh, more to the picture here. Because none other than Jesus Christ himself has given a diversity of things into the church as well. Not, I might note, a diversity of doctrine. This is important we understand. Jesus does not celebrate the fact that people believe different things within the church. You will find that nowhere in scripture. You find that a lot in churches today. You don't find that in scripture. Jesus allows for people to believe different things because he recognizes that we are not all yet at the unity of the faith. That's why he says in verse 13 that the goal is that we need to attain to the unity of the faith. But the assumption is that we are not there. The assumption is that we are in different places in many ways, but we have to strive to get there. But when Jesus gives gifts to the church, he does not give diversity of doctrine as a gift. That is not one of the spiritual gifts in the lists, and it's not in keeping with the unity of the faith that he has laid down. The faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says in the book of Jude. But he does give differences in spiritual gifts. Verse 7, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive, captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So Jesus gave these gifts to the church. Well, what did he give? Verse 11, he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now, as we'll see when we go through the section on spiritual gifts, this list, just like the rest of the lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible, was not intended to be exhaustive. These gifts are here for a particular reason. He is not saying these are all the gifts that there are in the whole entire world 
the whole entire church. He's not saying that in 1 Corinthians 12. He's not saying that in Romans 12. He's not saying that in 1 Peter 4. And also, when you put all those together, you don't have just some type of exhaustive list of every potential gift either. But what you do have here is a particular focus that Paul himself has that is going somewhere. So in Ephesians 4.11, what are the kinds of gifts that he talks about Jesus giving to the church? Do you notice? If you were to categorize these things and say, how do they all fit together? How do they, in fact, fit together? Well, what you find is that these gifts in Ephesians 4.11 are gifts that have to do with word ministry. Ministry of the word of God. Some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. The first two listed are gifts that have to do with receiving divine revelation as the foundation of the church. You say, how do you know that? Well, look back in chapter 2, verse 20. Right before this, in fact, you pick up, it says, God's household, verse 19, Ephesians 2, 20, having been built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets. This, by the way, is not the apostles of the New Testament and then the prophets of the Old Testament. That was a real group. But these are the same type of people only getting revelation in a new era. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look in chapter 3 and verse 5. Which in other generations speaking of the mystery of Christ, was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has now revealed these particular truths to the sons of men, to people. It is not just in the mind of God any longer. It is now revealed to men. It is now revealed to people in through the apostles and prophets. So these apostles and New Testament prophets are the foundation of the church. Of course, we understand as well that what was revealed previous to those prophets and those apostles is actually still there as well in terms of the Old Testament prophets. But what he's talking about here is the foundational truth of the new covenant, the New Testament, the words, the message, the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. So you have here then the apostles and prophets receiving foundational New Testament revelation. They are the foundation. And once again, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts later on. But I hope that you see already that uh, if the apostles were the foundation, and of course if the apostles are no longer with us, then we still very much benefit from the ministry of the apostles as the church overall because we have their words written down on the pages of the New Testament. God has preserved the message for us we don't have to have them tell it to us again and again when the scripture is living and active and it speaks to us every time that we open it so you have the apostles and prophets receiving revelation so back in ephesians 4:11 these are the foundational gifts the word of god comes into the world through these guys and then the word goes out to the world through the other gifts that are given here verse 11 some as evangelists 
those who would preach the gospel. Perhaps those who just preach the gospel perhaps as a particular focus to individuals within a local setting. This could also involve people who are going to take the gospel to new places, traveling to a new setting as missionaries of some kind. Uh, It really is kind of wide open on that front. But the point is that they are preaching the gospel to people who don't know it. And this is a particular gift. All of us should be doing evangelism, but there are those who are in particular gifted as evangelists, as gospel proclaimers in different ways. So these take the gospel, take this revealed truth and give it to people who don't know the gospel. And then you have people within the church, some as pastors and teachers. Pastors have as a requirement for the office, by the way, the ability to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2 talks about overseers being required to do this. If you're going to shepherd the flock of God, Acts 20, you have to have sound doctrine and protect the flock. So pastors and teachers are involved in teaching the word of God. But why does this happen? Why does it happen? So that you can turn around and then just go out into the world and be a good person? Well, that's part of it. But... It's more than that. For a lot of people, ministry ends at Ephesians 4.11. Isn't it great that God gave us these gifts so that we can have sound doctrine? Isn't that great? And we're not going to be led astray. But that's not how the whole thing works. Word ministry is meant to prepare the church for more. It's meant to prepare the whole church for ministry. And so if you're listening to Bible teaching and you don't turn around and minister to others in the context of a local church, then either it's not actually faithful Bible teaching equipping you or you've misunderstood part of the purpose for which you're learning the truth. God did not save the church to be a body of sermon listeners only. It is good to receive the word of God with humility, but how can you carry out those commands if you're not fulfilling the many, many New Testament imperatives for how we ought to serve in response to that. We don't simply take the abstract truths of Scripture as a canon within the canon to say these are the things that really matter. And as long as we can sign a doctrinal statement or as long as we can think rightly about God, then we're fine. We need to put into action the things that we learn that are built upon the basis of those other things. By the way, I want to make sure you understand here, Ephesians 4.12, he says, pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, this is what is supposed to be happening. The saints, all Christians. By the way, if you're not familiar with that terminology with regard to that, uh, this entire letter, the, the letter to the Ephesians is written In chapter 1, verse 1, to the saints who are at Ephesus. The saints are not simply uh, an exalted class of people within Christianity. The saints refers to every single believer. Every single believer. So here when he says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, he is not saying we're going to pick a few people who can do ministry and everybody else can just kind of sit on there and do whatever they want to do. He's saying everybody in the church, every believer is to do the work of service. Everyone. And that is the goal of this equipping. That's not all that teaching is for. It is protective. It is instructive. It is meant to guide worship. It's meant simply to honor God. But it is also, among other things, 
to equip people for ministry. So when you see this here, you may want to stop and think and understand this is a bit tangential, but this is why we have to do more than simply what some people say uh, is to preach the gospel to the church. Now, I understand why people would emphasize that because there is certainly always the danger of getting into sort of legalistic tendencies or always making sure that people are doing, doing, doing. And that is a problem. It is a problem. And there are also people who uh, are concerned simply that people don't understand the gospel. And there's been much movement over the past 20 years or so to make sure that people are emphasizing the truths of the gospel. Things that are focused on the gospel, being gospel-centered and so on. And it is true that people need to know the gospel. But I hope you understand that it is not enough simply to take the core of the gospel and make that all that we hear every week. We need the gospel within the totality of all that the scripture says. And certainly it all connects to the gospel, but we need to know it all. We need to know the entirety of the truth. And this is why he says we need to do this until we all attain to the unity of the faith. If God didn't want us to understand these other things, why did he put them in the Bible to begin with? If he didn't want us to understand not just the gospel, but gospel ramifications and specific ways God wants this applied, why did he even give us these words? We need to live not by bread alone, but as Deuteronomy 8 says, by some of the words? No, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we need to understand the gospel and the entire Bible that surrounds it in order to be built up as Christians. Otherwise, just leave them here in Ephesians 4, 6. That's all we need. One this, one that, one that. You're all believers in Ephesus already anyway if you're getting this letter, so What else do we need? But he says, no, we need to do more. We need to grow more. And so we need to understand and never move away from the gospel, but we also need to build out what God builds out from that wonderful message. And so we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ raised from the dead. We preach the forgiveness of sins. We preach eternal life. We preach the exclusivity of Christ. We preach that every man is sinful and in need of a savior And that God has sent his son to take the burden of our sins, to take the penalty of our sins away if we simply cast ourselves upon his mercy and cry out to him to save us and trust him from our heart. We preach this and we need to preach this all the time. And we also need to preach everything that God has revealed. So what does this passage tell us as far as things that are commonly overlooked within ministry? It tells us that ministry is required from All believers, not just those who are vocational, those who do it for their job, those who have a formal position. Ministry is, as we find here, primarily aimed at the one another's within the church. That's why he says in verse 12, to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects uh, into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Please make sure that you don't buy into the lie that we don't need to worry about other people within the church and we only need to think about those on the outside. The opposite of that is very dangerous as well. To think that we only need to think about those who are already in the church and not think about those on the outside. 
But we shouldn't cast out the one in favor of the other. Both are true. And we need to always make sure that the church is being built up to what it ought to be. This is divinely prescribed and commanded. So we need to make sure that ministry, we recognize it is primarily aimed at one another's within the church. Ministry, as this says here, is dependent upon understanding the Bible. We can't go against what this says here and say, I don't need to know more of that theology I just want to serve Jesus. How can you serve Jesus if you're not equipped by pastors and teachers, by the word of God revealed in the New Testament for the work of ministry? How can you do ministry in this way? And this is why it's so important to understand the truths that undergird what we ought to do. As we go forward in this series of messages, we're going to talk about the principles that undergird our ministry. And you say, well, why do we need to know all this? Why can't we just go out and do ministry? Why can't we just go and serve? Well, because we need to know why we do what we do or else we're going to go astray. If we don't know where we're going, if we don't know what we're trying to accomplish, if we don't know the principles of who God is and what he expects of us, if we don't know why we minister in the first place, then we're going to lose our course. And the best we can hope is that we have some vestigial approach to ministry that kind of carries on what we used to do that somebody somewhere had a good idea about biblically and we kind of do the same things. But if we ever lose that opportunity, we're going to be lost and we won't know where to go. We have to know what the principles are so that we can apply with wisdom the truth of God in every possible ministry setting. Ministry is absolutely dependent upon understanding the Bible. And the more you understand the Bible, the better you're going to be able to minister all other things equal. Finally, just to remind you here, for many people, ministry does miss the crucial components of these two things, the word and the church. And we want to make sure that we avoid those things. We want to build our ministry on the word of God. We want to build it in and through and around and supported by and rooted in the local church so that we are doing things the way that God has told us to do them. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to minister. Who are we supposed to, who is supposed to minister? It's all of us. If you know the Lord Jesus, you're supposed to minister to him and on his behalf and to one another. And of course, if you have not become a Christian, just understand that Christ Jesus himself, as we'll see in much detail later on, became a servant himself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 15 that Christ has become a servant on behalf of the Gentiles, the nations, and on behalf of his people Israel. A servant. He became a servant to them. And he did this by dying on a cross. And before you can do any faithful ministry, you need to put your trust in him. And if you haven't done that, before you even need to worry about ministry, you need to worry about your state of your soul before God. But he offers salvation to you, and now is the time to take it. We'll see more about how we respond to that in the weeks ahead. For now, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us as we begin to serve him in this way. God, thank you for this time. May we honor your name by uh, being properly convinced of where and how we need to serve. Make us willing as we go through these things to give of ourselves on behalf of the one who gave completely himself for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.